Hi, this is Kev Legs Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to say I'm now joined on the phone by Andy Scott of Sweet Andy. How are you? Um, well, I'm actually fine, but um, got a couple of health issues that I'm <laughs> dealing with. And um, well, as I said to you before, before we came on, um, it's not a problem, you know, uh, tomorrow's another day. Yeah, we, we sold you on it always, don't we? Yeah. Well, you're described on Wikipedia as a Welsh musician. Now, I would have thought a musician from Wales would have been suited. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not known for its grammar, is it? I think it's American, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you actually started out playing bass. Uh, yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, you've got to go back to the era of the shadows and then the beatles obviously and both of those bands had fabulous bass players so everybody showed up um at at school when we were about 14 and who had guitars and of course we had six guitar players and a guy whose father used to be in the salvation army so we had like a salvation army drum kit and six guitar players and we got up and played at the end of school kind of situation you know like, and now we've got guitars incorporated and it didn't quite sound right because several guitars were all going through the same speakers and, and things things like this uh, very, very little discretion and it sounded awful really and from that one of the guys um, and the drummer we decided to at least carry on and um, we found a slightly older guy who could sing and uh, another guy who'd been to, who was going to technical college, who was slightly older than us, um, and we formed this band called the Raz Jacks, which was a mixture of all of our um, names. Um, uh, one of our first gigs, uh, a New Year's Eve gig, um, some guy in the audience stepped forward after... Uh, first of all, I have to tell you, the microphone broke, so <laughs> the guy who was, the, who was going to do the singing couldn't, so he just decided to go to the bar. So the four of us were left uh, to do our seven, six or seven instrumentals that we knew. Mm. By the time we were heading into it for the third time, a guy from the front came forward and basically said, are you going to play the same things again? <laughs> and we said, yeah. He said, how much are you getting paid? And we said, I don't know, about a quid. He said, here's a quid. Don't play them anymore. <laughs> uh, but then in 1966, he joined the Silvertone set. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd been through um, about four four local bands by then. Um, you know, at the age of uh, fifteen into sixteen, there were a few bands. You know, who and and you think you're moving up the ladder. You know, I went from a one of these um, uh, play the hits of today band into a Rolling Stone style band, and then into a a very classy um, uh, slick band with a guitar player who could play all of the. Uh, Chet Atkins and Les Paul stuff and then I joined um, uh, the Silverstones because they were considered the best in the area and they were about to do a TV show in Wales which we uh, were, we finished third out of uh, about 50 or 60 bands that um, that entered the competition that's where I first met Andy Fairweather Logue because his band finished second so well According to the information I've got, you were on Opportunity Knox and you won five weeks running. Yeah, that that's, that happened afterwards. Um, right. This this particular Welsh TV show spurred us on to, to do an audition for 
for Opportunity Knox, and you're absolutely right, we did. We won five weeks, and it was the fabulous um, Freddie Starr who beat us, who knocked us out. So um, I think that um, one could say that his career, the way he went on, um, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that, that somebody would have beaten us at some point, and yeah. rather, it, rather it be him, you know? And you went on to support Jimi Hendrix at one point. Well, from that, um, you know, being um, p- playing up up in the north of England, you you get involved with one of the better uh, agencies, and um, they were like a Manchester-based agency. And Hendrix was on the road in January '67 with Hey Joe, and we got the supports up, you know, up north. Uh, we we played this this one place. Um, I don't think it's there anymore. The New Century Hall, which was part of the CIS building, like a probably the skyscraper of um, of Manchester, and on like the third or fourth floor, they had like a huge ballroom. And um, I mean, it was great. Uh, we used to play there fairly regularly and go down a storm because we were like a northern soul band. And then um, Hendrix came on and he started to clear the hall because. I don't think it was quite what they were expecting <laughs> because they were used to having bands like the Drifters or the Temptations, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, but what it did was it spurred the singer and myself from the Silverstones to stand on the side of the stage and go, well, I think our seven-piece soul band uh, is kind of going to be over very soon because that's the future. Yeah. You know. Well, then you moved on to be part of the backing band of the Scaffold, didn't you? Well, the Elastic Band came first. Um, we had a deal with um, Decca. Um, it was um, yeah, interesting. Um, we, I think we went to EMI far too early. We, we weren't ready. But by the time we went to Decca, we were a hell of a lot more prepared. And um, uh, once again, you know, Welsh Connection came up. Andy Fairweather-Lowe introduced us to his producer uh, with the Amen Corner. Uh, and the Elastic Band got signed to Decca. And we, um, uh, we had two... St- uh, two singles out and an album but by the time the album was being released our singer um and i have to think of him as a bit of a turncoat but um we, we made it up afterwards he left us to join the love affair which was in my eyes a slightly stupid mistake especially when they'd had such a good singer with um steve ellis and and their big hit um everlasting love i think the chances of them moving on with a new singer was far less than maybe him staying with the Elastic Band and us having a having a crack, especially as you know we were uh, starting to get somewhere, if you like. And um, and then once he left, that's when the scaffold thing came up. We met the musical director of the scaffold, uh, who had also uh, worked on some Paul McCartney stuff. He got us schooled in in a slightly different different way in, in order to perform behind the. Um, the scaffold for for a few months, which, which was great grounding. I have to say, I was I would not have missed that for the world. Oh, was it from there that you went to the audition for the suite? No, um, my brother and I, who were the he was the bass player now in the Elastic Band, and I was the guitarist. Uh, we moved to London and joined a band which was rather short lived, but it got us into London, if you like. Um, we joined a band called Mayfield's Mule. Um, who'd had a minor hit with uh, Drinking My Moonshine. And the um, the bass player had left, and my brother got, got the job. And Chris Mayfield, the singer, the guitarist, said, I need to concentrate on my singing a bit more. We need a, probably need another guitar player like um, a, a, lot, a lot of bands did at that time. And um, 
So my brother said, well, my brother's free, you know. So I came down. We hit it off. We started to sound probably a little bit like Thin Lizzy before Thin Lizzy. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was like 1970. And um, then he decided to not want to go on the road anymore and concentrate on his songwriting. So my brother and I were now left um, twiddling our thumbs. And it was from there that the, um, that the Sweet Audition popped up. And is it true that at your audition you plugged your guitar in and blew the fuse on the amp? Well, I didn't actually blow the fuse, but the guy who'd been, or, or the amp I was using, the person who'd been using it before, had just turned, like, like a lot of people did with Marshalls, they just rolled their hand across and everything was on 10. <laughs> right. So when I plugged in, it was hellishly, and th- this was a smallish room that we were in, everything was um, on 10, I plugged in, I'm standing almost in front of the, the amp, and my guitar's turned up as well, so there's this howl, you know, um, scream from the guitar. I turned it down. I went, shall I continue? Steve Priest was asleep on, on his uh, bass amp. Um, and um, Mick Tucker went, um, that's probably the best thing that's happened all afternoon, mate. Carry on. <laughs> you know, but, but I'd met this week before, so um, they, they kind of knew who I was. And... Um, I just didn't know what the management or the, 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 the production team were looking for, but I, I, I certainly got to know what the band were looking for. They were looking for somebody with a bit of dynamic, you know. Um, a guitar player isn't just going to do what, what's needed. You want somebody to go beyond that, if you like. Yeah. There's been some compilations over the years, and if you look at the early, very early recordings, 1968-type stuff, they were yeah. more psychedelic, weren't they? So did you bring that rock edge to them? Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, when Brian and, and Mick um, left to form the band, um, I don't know what they, you know, what they knew that, 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 that they were going to be doing, but they were given a, a song uh, to record. And, and the weird thing is, the guy who ended up producing us in the 70s produced that very first single. It was one of his first productions, uh, that single is worth a lot of money now because mm. I, I think there was only 350 pressed. So, yeah. and then they got signed to EMI for a year and a half, something like that, and they released two or three singles. Which I remember one of them, uh, a song called "All You'll Ever Get from Me," being played to death on the radio, and and that's where I met them. The Elastic Band used to do these BBC roadshows. Be we were the live band on the, on the roadshows. Mm-hmm. And the suite arrived um, when we were playing somewhere, and they were the um, guest band uh, pushing their new single. You know, because uh, during the uh, from nine in the morning till midday, they had people arriving. You know, I've got a new single out. Oh, oh, you never guess, because um, they were usually um, on uh, seaside resorts. Oh, we've got. Uh, it wouldn't be Morecambe and Wise or, or Tommy Cooper, but it, it's that kind of thing. You know, yeah. oh, we've got so and so who's appearing in this resort and it, and it was it was like um you know like a multi variety kind of thing so yeah. going back to the audition um i i adjusted the amp accordingly and we just got on with it and you made your live debut with the band in red car in 1970 um yes i um I, we used to play the red car jazz club as when i was with the elastic band and the guy who ran it also ran um, should we say more commercial nights in the Red Car Hotel in the ballroom there? And when we played up there, um, 
the support band had one Dave Coverdale as the singer in one of the times uh, that that we played there. But we used to play the the, the jazz club, which had bands like uh, Jethro Tull and Yes and all kinds of um, progressive rock bands coming to play there. But um, we headlined at the um, at the Red Car Hotel, which was um, that must have been through me. I, I would have uh, rung this guy Roger and just said. Um, I was about putting this on, and he said, I, I heard you joined them, and uh, and he did, and, and away we went. Yeah. And then the hit started to come, written for you, and it wasn't until Wigwam Bam that you actually got to play and sing on the singles, didn't it? Yeah, there was a lot of that going on in the early 70s, um, you know, uh, pre-recorded um, backing tracks. Phil was a drummer, and he had a, a bunch of session musicians that he was used to working with, and the way that some of the songs were written, uh, we would have heavied them up anyway. And that's not what they wanted. They wanted something that was a bit lighter, a little bit more radio friendly. Uh, and then the business started to change. In 1972, you know, uh, we kind of see the birth of glam rock proper. And we'd had Little Willie out where we'd participated a little bit. You know, there'd been a acoustic guitar here and a, and a bit of percussion, you know, there. Our version... If, oh, God, if only I could find that version. Um, it's obviously been deleted by the BBC. But I think our backing track and our performance um, on that is far better than, than the record that got released, if, if you want the truth. It's got a bit more... Um, it's not people reading dots and, you know, playing playing the right notes. Mm. It's got a little bit of attitude to it. And uh, as somebody said, it's um, it's a heavy rock version of um, of, of Little Willie. Um, but but you're right, Wigwam Bam was the starting point, and I think that was probably one of the starting points of glam rock as well. You, you, have, you have to give it to um, Mark Bolan to find the origins, but by 1972 you had David Bowie on top of the Pops performing Starman, you had us with you know Wigwam Bam, and I think you've got Dave Hill for the first time starting to overly dress up, you know? Yeah. That was the thing at that time, because I'm old enough to remember those days. Um, mm. There seemed to be a lot of camaraderie between the bands. Was that um, true, or was that more for the cameras? Well, when I once again, I have to go back to the Elastic Band. When I was with the Elastic Band, I knew the, the Slade when they were called the In-Betweens. So um, I already had that kind of connection with them. Um, and also, you know, we... Um, uh, the Elastic Band had met the move and um, with, with Roy Wood, you know, so that when Wizard came through, I think the fans created the um, the Do you like Slade or Sweet? You know that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, more than the bands, because um, you know the the BBC Bar after Top of the Pops was always a, a rare place to be. You know, <laughs> you said that uh, you were going to a more heavier sound once you started playing on your own records, Ballroom Blitz. Is it true that that was inspired by an incident in Scotland? Uh, it is. Um, Mike Chapman, the, half of the songwriting team, hadn't really seen us play for a while, and he came to the show we were doing in Hammersmith uh, at the Palais, would you believe? Um, this was just before uh, we'd already recorded Blockbuster, and we threw it into the set, but we played it with a much harder edge, a bit more, probably a little bit more like um, David Bowie's Gene Genie. And he was mystified and kind of saying i haven't heard you play for ages so we said well why don't you come up to scotland with us you know next week you know we're playing this place that we always sell out and you know it's going to be nuts you know and he, he came with us 
and I think from there he he wrote um, Hellraiser and um, the Ballroom Blitz. So sometimes um, a little bit of um, a skullduggery works, doesn't it? <laughs> and in 1975, you released your first solo single, Lady Starlight. Right. Had that been on the back burner for some time? No, it, it, it first appeared on the uh, European Desolation Boulevard album, but Mike Chapman actually said to me, that is a single. But he said, you're not the lead singer in Sweet. And I said, no, I'm not. Um, and I said, and anyway, um, I wouldn't want to be the lead singer and it be called Sweet. And it, was, it coincided with the, uh, the period um, where Brian had uh, been beaten up by some thugs outside a nightclub, what the hell he was doing in a nightclub on his own, I'll never know. And there was a, like a dull moment in the horizon coming, you know, coming up. And uh, RCA basically said, we love that. Mick Tucker and I went into the studio and did a little bit of uh, production work to tidy it up a little bit so it's, and edited it so it became a single. And uh, the Andy Scott solo single was released and I did a couple of TVs, um, uh, Mike Mansfield's Supersonic and a, and a couple of others. It was a hit in Germany, South Africa, um, Holland, Sweden. It did okay, mm. it, and, and it, it got sweet out of a hole, if you like. Yeah, I think our next outing was Action. You know, the that was a heavy rock track. Oh, well, I think um, you've got to remind me. Uh, did Lady Starlight come out before or after Fox on the Run? Um, Fox on the Run was the first self-written one, so that would yeah. be, that would have been early, about seventy-four, maybe. And I think Lady that, Starlight I think that was, was beginning, beginning of seventy. Ah uh, well, it was uh, it was between then. Uh, Lady uh, Lady Starlight was after Fox on the Run then. Yeah, yeah. And the band okay. continued to have hits. They had thirteen top twenty hits during the nineteen seventies, and they sold over thirty five million albums worldwide. Mm. Well, then, as bands quite often do, you went your separate ways, and you went into producing after the breakup. <laughs> well. There's a little bit before that, um, between 75 and 78, we didn't really play in the UK. We were in America a lot. We, start, we were having hits over there um, and a couple of uh, gold albums and I'm still touring in Europe, of course. But the UK um, had kind of given us a bit of a wide berth. You know, we, we, it wasn't easy. Mm. Um, and then we came back with Love is Like Oxygen in 1978. That's the important moment because that's kind of what triggered um you know brian leaving the band really right. um we were on tour in america and the alcohol had just gotten too much in the last from 79 to 81 we were we were only three you know uh, brian had left but you're absolutely right um in the early 80s um i was producing you know other other artists and playing on certain people's records and and writing songs for a couple of people one so, name that jumped out was Susie Quattro, Back to the Drive. Uh, yeah, that was a little bit later on, but um, the, um, uh, the chronological thing here is uh, the guy that I was writing songs with, we got a song on um, Greg Lake's solo album. It got to the point where my agent knew the manager of um, Iron Maiden, oh, and, right. and, and um, they had a song called Running Free, which was the demo, which wasn't very good. And they wanted to improve it, so I took them in the studio over a weekend. And then the record company couldn't wait, and they released the demo anyway. And 
um, I don't think it affected their career, did it? You know, no, no. I had some solo singles out in '83 and '84, uh, which once again did did okay abroad. Didn't really do much here, and then the band we kind of reformed in '85. And there have been various guises of that over the years. And in 2012, you were the, one of the main organisers of the first Rock Against Cancer concert. Um, yeah, sadly, the the last one was this year, um, number number eight and nine. Um, we pushed two years together because of the pandemic. Mm. But yes, it was a, a fantastic situation. Um, we've had some great artists um, show up. The first year we had Brian May and uh, Mike and the Mechanics. Um, second year, I think we had uh, 10CC. And, and, and over the years, we've had the Boomtown Rats, Squeeze, Sweet have played every other year. Um, and th- this, this last year, we, um, we invited back people who'd played before. And we had um, uh, Billy Ocean and 10CC and Lindis Vaughan. It was a fantastic situation in a pub garden that held 5,000 people. Mm. And uh, I'm I'm sad that it's not going to be happening again. Never say never. Well, um, never say never, no. <laughs> Jumping forward, bringing us right up to date, you've got the new single out now, Everything, which is a reworking of one of your older songs. And apparently yeah. this came about because of rehearsals for the tour. Well, we, we, we've had a, a new lineup for about three years now, Um and Paul Manzi, the, the lead singer, he was with a band called Cats in Space. And they, uh, he was leaving. But we used to use Paul as, a, as our dep. I'm the only person in Sweet who can't leave, remember. Mm. I've always got to be there. But we've got a, a stand-in drummer for the odd show. We've had um, a stand-in uh, singer who can play bass. We've had a keyboard player who can stand in. And Paul could play a bit of guitar, a bit of keyboards, and sing. Uh, so he was the obvious choice for me, you know, when the previous singer said he was leaving to form this uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash type acoustic band. Um, so we get into rehearsals for this tour and we're looking at, back at the catalogue thinking what songs m- might fit, what might not. And the suggestion was um, uh, at one of the sound checks um, uh, for one of the gigs we've done this year, let's try everything. And as soon as I heard Paul sing it, and we've got a great bass player, um, Lee, uh, Lee Small, he's got a great voice. When the two of them started to sing in harmony, I just kind of wet myself. <laughs> I thought, this, we've got to record this, and quick. And that's exactly what we did. And yeah. here we are, it's out now. And we've had over 200,000 views in 10 days on our YouTube channel, which is fantastic. Yeah. The thing is, songs do develop over the years as you're playing them live. Are there any of the sweet songs that when you perform them now, you think this is how they should have been back in the 70s? Um, Only the ones that I'm kind of in control of. I actually think Set Me Free is one of those that's matured nicely. I think the original band did did a great job of it, but but live, um, I find myself, you know, really enjoying the, um, the reworkings of that, you know. And you still get the buzz when you go out performing live, then? Uh, you can't do it if you don't. Yeah. Um, I've always said this, if you don't enjoy what you do, find another job. Yeah. And would you ever see yourself going back to producing? I don't think that position um, is um, a viable thing um, for, for a man of my age these days, um, unless unless it's one of my contemporaries who, who've liked 
the, the sound of, of of what they've heard. Um, I mean, we will be doing another QSP album, you know, the Quattro, Scott and Powell thing. There will be a, a QSP too. Well, I'll I'll be producing that. But um, other than Sweet, um, right, right at this moment. Oh, I did produce a band called the Nova Teens um, two years ago, um, a bit of last year. You know, we, we've released um, some of their stuff. You'll find it on YouTube. They're, they're a great band. Um, and... Um, uh, the pandemic hasn't helped them. You know, we'll see, we'll see what happens with them as we come out of all of this. But people have to remember, you know, um, even though we're coming on tour, it's not over. We are we are having to be in a bubble when we go on tour. You know, n- none of this backstage with twenty or thirty people no. all having a drink. You know, it's mm. going to be it's going to be a very um, tight ship because uh, I'm already hearing about some of the bands that came back on the road. And one of their members have gone down with COVID, and I don't want that to happen. You know, we're doing yeah. 16, 16 shows, and I think I'd like to do all 16. And what about plans for more recording once the tour's over? The album that we released, Isolation Boulevard, the, the re-recording of um, Desolation Boulevard with a few extras, came about because... In the pandemic, there was no way we were going to be able to get into a studio altogether, which is the way we like to record. So we came up with that as an interim album, but we still owe Sony um, one album of brand new material, and uh, that we have plans for that. Um, we wanted to try and get it kick-started um, earlier than the, the next year, but things just haven't quite worked out. And um, so I think January next year, we'll uh, we already have... Um, half a dozen of the tracks sorted. Uh, we just need to get another half dozen sort, uh, recorded. Yeah. Mm. Well, I wish you all the best for the future, and thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. Uh, that's all right, Kev. Yeah, it's, been, um, it's been nice. Yeah. Well, a little trip down memory lane. Okay, you take care. And you, mate. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. And I hope you enjoyed that little interview there. And there will be more as we record more for the show. And we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So plenty more to come. And of course, if you want to hear the whole show, there is always Listen Again. I'll see you next time. Take care.